That's an incredible service. And then we have a marriage retreat. Uh, Peter and Hallie will be leading a group of people through uh, uh, this marriage retreat, and that's this weekend. So there's lots going on, besides all that's going on around the world, right? And we are going to take time at the end of this message to pray. We're going to pray for one another and for our nation. So just wanted to say that before we begin. Let's pray right now. Father... Uh, we open our hearts and our eyes and ask that you would take your word and speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. In 1866, there was a 15-year-old. His name was Erasmus Jacobs. He was playing on the banks of the Orange River in South Africa. And he was playing with some buddies and they were playing with these little stones that were shiny and they were just kind of like marbles and so they were throwing them. And I don't know how it happened, but if he brought one home, but he brought, I think, a bigger one home and it turned out to be a 21.25 carat diamond. A few years later, there was a colossal diamond called the, the Star of South Africa, 83 and a half carat deposit which was unearthed in this shallow hill, which caused a mad rush of what, do you think? Of people who would go to this mine that is now called Kimberley, where there was the first large-scale mining operation. There had been diamonds coming from India, and that began to dry up at a certain point, and, and then they found a few in Brazil, but it wasn't until the South Africa mines did it just break open? And um, that's one of the reasons, you know, that I get lots of diamonds from my wife is because we're told that they have this history of being beautiful objects of desire. Hi. Um, <laughs> she just frowned. I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. But a couple kids were playing with diamonds, incredible wealth that they thought were just marbles, little pebbles, little rocks that they were playing with and they were holding in their hands something of great value. Paul writes to a group of people, and we're going to begin this new series, God's Best for You. Um, not really the reason why I dressed up a little, but then I got here, I thought, you know, maybe that's okay. Um, you used to do that, right? You used to come to church in your best for God. I'm not saying that you need to still do that, but I'm just saying this passage of scripture that we go through, this letter, is all about God's best for you. And he's writing to a group of people who had Jesus Christ and they didn't realize all that they had in their hands in that sense. They thought maybe at a certain point when they began to go through some difficulty and some and people actually were were coming to convince them otherwise that this was just another religion and Paul even writes another philosophy and I believe that's referring to um, the Jewish rites and things such as that because they would use that at times they talk about another philosophy um, just another faith is what they thought they had so those who began to follow the way of Jesus began to think of Christianity as just merely some kind of upstart religion New, unestablished, and so they were beginning to return to what was familiar, what had been tried and true. And so Paul had never traveled to this group 
Someone who was in Ephesus where he was at had actually come to faith. His name Epaphras and went back and he brought the message of Jesus Christ. And it was coming back to Paul once again, who had still not visited these people, that these people were beginning to let go of this incredible value that they had in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Today, it's easy to give up on Christianity, but for a whole different reason. It's not because it's new or strange, but because it's old and familiar. Our money, we inscribed a few words that says, in God we trust, but in reality we often place our trust in something other. Paul would say to us, as he said to Colossae, you hold Jesus in your hands. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For him and by him all things were created. He is before all things. In him all things are held together. For God was pleased to have the fullness of him of God himself dwell within him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. This is the Jesus who you have. Jesus, in a sense, is the best that God can give you. Jesus is the best God can do for you. Jesus is the best God has to offer. Because in Jesus, God is available to you. And so Paul writes in Colossians, don't miss God's best for you. Jesus is enough. You don't need anything more but Jesus. This walk with him. Uh, Medicine, insurance, financial planning, religion are all, in a sense, good things, but they are less than best. Medicine can't cure all diseases. Insurance doesn't cover all disasters. Financial plans can't plan for heartbreaks due to tragedy. And religion without Jesus is merely ritual and usually self-help psychology. And so he says, don't miss Jesus. What we're going to try and do in these few weeks, five weeks, is to do the impossible. We're going to go through this letter of Colossians, which is just so steeped with truth that you could stop on almost every verse and we won't be able to do that. Um, But as we go through this, what I want to do first is just do a quick overview because it's so easy to get lost in the trees. And I'm just going to get us to the, the, the main verse because if you go through chapter one and then into the first few verses of chapter two, Paul is setting up to get to one main idea. He gives a greeting in the first three verses, and then in verses three through eight, he says, in a sense, this is how I'm thanking God for you. You'll see a prayer of thanks. In verses nine through 23 of chapter one, he then says, this is how I'm praying for you. And then, and then you go to chapter uh, one, verse 24, all the way to verse five of chapter two. So one 24 to two five, and you get this idea, this is how I am struggling for you. So he basically says, I'm thanking God for you, I'm praying for you, I'm struggling for you, and he comes to the key verse in this whole this whole text, it's in verse um, 6 and 7 of chapter 2, here's the main focus, so then, because I am praying and, and I'm thanking and praying and struggling for you, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And then he goes on and gives some more instruction. So as we go through this, that's kind of the direction we're heading. But what I want to do in this message this morning is looking at the first 14 verses is is help you see what Paul wants us to see, which I think is what Jesus wants us to see. 
You ever had an opportunity to wear night vision goggles? Anybody? A few of you have. I asked someone if I could use it, someone who was in the military, if they had some, and they go, you know what, they're really expensive. The military doesn't part with those too easily. I wanted to come up here and put that on. But you know what? I, I didn't. So what I want you to notice is, is if you were in the dark and couldn't see a thing, night vision goggles allow you to see something. All you have to do is put them on. And when you're in that night vision goggle, you can see things that you don't normally see. I think, do we have one more? Is that just, yeah. So if you look everything else, that's kind of how it looks until you put those on. And, and what I want you to understand is we get into this letter of Colossians. Colossians is a book where you will find again and again, he says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. If you find yourself in Christ, you will be able to see things you wouldn't see otherwise. You'll begin to start seeing how incredibly great God's love is for you. And you'll begin to walk in this and understand it and be rooted and you'll be built up. And, and as you are strengthened by the fact that his Holy Spirit is living within you and he's, he's working with you. And as you listen to his voice, he will guide you. All these different things. But one of the things he says as we look at these first 14 verses is... The way you should live is in Christ. A hundred, listen to this, 169 times in the letters of Paul alone does he say in Christ. And in this, this letter itself, he says it some 60 sometimes. He just is, I, I want you to be in Christ. I want you to put on the night goggle vision, so to speak. Those you know, night vision goggles that, that allow you to see things and allow you to see God's church and allows you to see yourself and allows you to see your life and allows you to see other people. That you wouldn't see if you were dependent on Jesus, if you were not connected to him, if you were not in him. And anyone who's put their faith and trust in Christ is in Christ. Now it's a matter of walking in him, living in him. And so he goes on in these verses. And so I'm just going to go through this. And, and I want you to realize that if you want, you want the best, if you, if you really want the best, you want to see the best, you need to focus on the best. And so we're going to kind of march through these verses. Colossians verses 1 1 and 2. And one of the things I want you to notice in this is a series of questions. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you a series of questions to say, do you see the best? Do you see, do you find yourself in Christ? Are you willing to put yourself in Christ and through this week and through your life be able to say, I want to see the best? So I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to say these first three verses together as we read this scripture. Let's read it together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brother and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And do we have, yeah, okay, that's good. Thanks, you may be seated. So what's your view of of the church? How do you view the church? What does it look like in Christ? When you think of the church, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Paul begins this and makes it very clear that the way the early church viewed themselves, the way that Jesus viewed the church is through these simple words, brothers and sisters. He sees it as a family. If you look at verse 2, there's a footnote that's in the New International Version, and, and it says in the footnote, the Greek word for brothers and sisters, the word Adelphoi, refers here to believers, both men and women, as part of God's family. You'll see the same thing he says in verse 15 of chapter 4. 
See, we have a distorted view of the church. The distortion keeps us from being our best. We see the church as a building. We see the church sometimes as just a business. We see the church as, and we come in as consumers specifically. Do we like what we get? We don't see the church the way that God sees the church, the way the early church saw itself, the way that Paul saw it, and he saw it as a family. Now, that's kind of hard to do because in many ways we come in here and we leave and it's almost like going to a movie theater, seeing a movie and you go and you don't really know anybody sitting around you, right? That's one of the reasons when we talk about the church for it to truly be a family, we've talked about being in community and being community means getting together with people in small groups, beginning to do life with people and getting to know them as brothers and sisters. And... It calls for us to really ask a very important question. For us to be the church, to say, God, I'm going to give you time to worship each week and I'm going to give you time to be involved in someone else's, in, in some other people's lives, whether you meet weekly or, or every other week or what that looks like, it's a matter of priorities, right? Am I going to take time to get to know one another as the way the church is described in its best form, and that is that we are brothers and sisters. We are a family. That's one of the first questions is kind of asked that. Um, did you know that there was a, um, a guy, it was reported this last week, his name is Mike Storms, he was walking among a, a bunch of crowded shelves in a New Jersey Goodwill store. And he's walking through the store, and he, he it's a place where he works, and he sees this yellow and faded thing, and it caught his eye, and it was on a shelf amidst a jumble of different things. And it was a framed sheet of newsprint, dense columns of tiny text, topped with a small engraving of a snake, that's kind of dismembered snake. And on the, the masthead it said, Unite or Die. And it was the Pennsylvania Journal Weekly Advertiser, and it read December 28th, 1774. And he says, it had been sitting there for months, ignored or dismissed as a worthless reproduction. And then all of a sudden my eyes caught it and saw it. And this little thing that had been sitting there that someone could have picked up for a few dollars was $18,000. Only four of these newspapers remain. And he was just amazed. He said, you know, people went by and people brought it in and no one saw it. And saw the value of it. There is a sense that um, what Paul is saying is how you view the church is, is really important. What it means to find it as a priority and seeing its value. Francis Chan has got a book out right now called Letters to the Church, and it's, um, it is a scathing review on the church. And uh, if we take all that he says, um, we wouldn't have any paid clergy anymore. So I don't know if I want you to read it. But anyway, he basically states that we have settled for a view of the church that is far less than what God sees it. He says we read scripture and are bothered for what we think isn't fair, use the dies while trying to keep the ark from falling. Moses doesn't get to the, enter the promised land because he got angry and struck a rock. Saul is rejected as king because he failed to wait for Samuel to return and offer a sacrifice. Don't you look at those things? You go, man, that just doesn't seem fair. 
And then he says, to us, Chan writes, many situations of scripture involve punishment that was too severe for the crime. We don't understand what it means for something to be sacred. We live in a human-centered world among people who see themselves as the highest authority. We're quick to say things like, that isn't fair, because we believe we deserve certain rights as humans. Yet we give little thought to the rights God deserves as God. Even in the church, we act as though God's actions should revolve around us. The stories in Scripture are meant to show us that there exists something greater value than our existence rights. There are things that belong to God, sacred things. His Ark of the Covenant, his offerings in the temple, his Holy Spirit, his Holy Communion, his sacred church. There is no greater honor on earth than to be a part of God's church. And he asked this question, when is the last time you were awestruck by the fact that you are a part of Christ's body. Have you ever marveled at the privilege of being a part of God's family? And I thought, when is the last time we marveled at that truth? That Paul says right here is made up of brothers and sisters, a part of God's family. Imagine if you were invited to the royal wedding with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Some of you would be excited. You would feel it's a bit special when you got the invitation. What do you think your father in heaven is thinking when you talk about the church sometimes the way we do? When we talk about another brother the way we do? Or we treat another sister the way that we do? Chan gives some incredible analogies and causes us just to see how lightly we take this sacred gift of the church. He quotes scripture, he says, The riches of Christ, once hidden, have been brought to light so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And then he says, think about what God is saying. God wanted to show the heavenly beings his incomparable wisdom. So he created the church, us. And the curtain is drawn back in heaven and they, they gasp as they see the church. No way, this is unreal. And I wish I could see Chan telling it because he'd be getting real, jumping around. Through the cross, people of every nation are being brought to complete unity as one family. This is the church. It is sacred. It matters to God. Chan goes, many today treat the church as optional, as some outdated way to connect to God that has been long outlived its usefulness. They'd rather connect with God on their own or in their own way without all the weird people making things so difficult. Heavenly beings, though, are shocked by God's church while many on earth yawn. The early church didn't need the energetic music, great videos, attractive leaders, elaborate lighting to be excited about being a part of God's body, his family. Meeting God and meeting with his family was enough. So I'm just asking questions, okay? How do you view the church? How do you view yourself? It it comes out in this greeting as well. Do you see yourself as God sees you? or Maybe if you put on those night vision goggles, the in Christ, you'll begin to see yourself the way Christ sees you. Paul is here stating what's merely true. He sees the best in you in order to bring out the best in you. So so Paul says, if you listen to verse 2, to God's holy people in Colossae, to the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And he begins by making it clear that what the church is, and then he goes on and he talks about you individually as family members. 
He says the church is something extraordinary, special. It's made up of holy people, people set apart, brothers and sisters, God's family on earth. But here's what you have to understand, who you are. You're holy. That word is an interesting word. It's often translated even the word saint. In fact, the King James Version, I think, does a good job. The New King James Version actually keeps it and says, "To, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. So I want you to just take a second and look at someone next to you. Okay, take a moment and look at them and just say, you're a saint. Yeah. Tell them, even though you do a bunch of weird things, you're still a saint. You're sitting next to saints. You are a saint, according to the word of God. Now, if we, if we do it according to the Catholic Church, you aren't a saint. Because that's a five-step process. You know that the local bishop actually has to recommend you first. And then the congregation for causes of saints, they either um, receive and, and, and accept or they reject that local bishop's recommendation. And then the congregation for causes of saints approves you as heroic and virtuous in your faith. At this point, you're called venerable. Just even getting it from a local bishop, you're called a servant of God. But now you've moved to venerable once they approve it. But that, that does, still isn't enough. Now, now you actually have to perform a miracle through an intercession. And it's the best ones, and I'm not trying to be funny because I, I got this right from their book. The best ones are healing miracles. Where you are supernaturally healed and you can medically prove that you have been. And that's still not enough because at this point you're just called blessed until you do a second miracle. At which point you're called a saint. And by the way, they tell you you have to be dead. So, usually you are. To be called a saint, according to Paul in the New Testament, you only need to be someone who is a follower of Jesus and you need to recognize your sin and your need and call upon Jesus and walk in a relationship with Jesus and you want to be in Christ so that you can begin to see the world that God sees. And so Paul looks at him and says, you guys are saints, I, I see it. And, and the word of God is really clear here. As a saint, you are, you are one who sins, but you are a saint who sins from time to time And the reason he uses the word faithful next to it, because faithful isn't usually used along with that in most of Paul's other writings, he uses the word faithful here because he was calling out something in them that they needed to be. They were in the process of going back, maybe letting go, and to some he said, I know you're faithful. I see it in you. It's kind of like when Jesus would look at Peter and he goes, you know, Peter, you are like shifting sand, you are sticking your foot in your mouth, but you're a rock. I can see it. I got the goggles on. I, I see you, Levi. I go by the tax booth. One time I'm preaching away and I call you and everyone's astounded because I call you now Matthew. And Matthew means gift of God because if you read through Matthew, you see the long teaching sections of God. He was probably an accountant who was really good at taking down things. God is looking at you right now in the midst of the fact that you feel you've blown it, you're a failure, you've sinned, and he looks at you and he says, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, his love for you, just your pure trust in his gift to you makes you righteous in his eyes. But you have to choose to say, I want to trust you. 
You have to choose to say, God, I want to put on this in Christ experience. I want to walk with you. And he looks at you. And what I'm saying is not a lie. He is looking at you and he's calling out the best in you. He sees the best in you. One of my favorite verses when I was coming to faith in Christ was a verse that Paul said, not only that I've obtained all this, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ has taken hold of me. And I remember in, in high school, I was in athletics, and I never always necessarily gave my best, but I remember some coaches who would call out the best in me. And I remember thinking to myself, Jesus, you will do that for me. If I just submit my heart to you and I open my heart to you, you will look into my heart and you will call out the best in me. How do you view yourself? I just want you to listen for a second because Jesus, God doesn't have to audibly speak. He can impress a thought on your mind. Just listen for a second. What, what is the word that Jesus calls you? I'm guessing it's different for a number of us here. Some of you going, this is weird. I've never done this. What are we doing here in church like this? We're listening to the Spirit of God because He wants to be in communication with each and every one of us here. And if He's God, He can do it, right? So, what does He hear? What do you? How do you view yourself? How do you view your life? You can tell we're going to have a hard time getting through all fourteen verses, but I promise you, we will. Okay? Don't get nervous. Because we're going to go through the last, like, oh, a whole lot of them quickly. Um, the NIV says to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I'm, that's not really the best. If you really want to get the parallelism you find in the Greek language, that's not really the best. In fact, I think in this one, again, the New King James Version is a little better here. It says to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Colossae in Christ. That's exactly what it is. It's kind of a weird phrase. He puts them together. Like, here you are, you're in two locations. You're in Christ and you're also, you're in Colossae and you're also in Christ. You are where you are in Colossae. It is, a, it is not an accident. You are there because I have something for you to do there. I want you as you walk and remain faithful to me. I will do things in your life. Colossae was an interesting city. It's just an agricultural town, little known about it. It was located on the southern bank of the Lycus River in a territory called Phrygia, which we don't know today, but it's modern Turkey. It was about 110 miles east of Ephesus, which was on the coast Ephesus was. And there were two neighboring cities, one called Laodicea and one called Hierapolis. This was in the area of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And both of them had become far more important and influential than little Colossae. It had been situated in a region prone to earthquakes. And an earthquake in 61-62 came and destroyed the city. And we find that Colossae is not mentioned any longer after that. It didn't rebuild according to extant literature, but Laodicea and Hierapolis and some of those seemed to have maybe weathered that or done it differently. And Paul writes, he says, you're in Colossae, in Christ. You are in two locations. God has purposely placed you where you're at. He's placed you in Christ. Your identity is this. You are a saint. You are loved by God. You are equipped by God to serve him right where you live right now. So how do you view your life? 
Oh, I'm just a mom and I, you know, I don't get time to, I wish I had more time to do this or that. And she's going, you know, you're right where he wants you. I'm a, I'm, I'm a dad and I'm working all these hours and, and, and he's going, you know what? Um, you are right where I want you. You are called to live your life right where you work. You're both working. You both are working like crazy. And, and, and you're kind of saying, how do I do? And God is saying, I, I just want you to view your life and recognize I put you in a place and I've put you in me for a purpose. Where you are today and what you are doing is no mistake. Now, I'm not saying that you don't at times have to evaluate and say, God, is this what I'm going to be doing right now? What are my priorities? You know, it's really interesting. Isn't it true that priorities, they just, you think like when you just get things the way they should be, things shift, right? Life is dynamic. Oh, this is just great. You know, we're, we're really connecting in our marriage and all of a sudden something changes externally. And you have to kind of take another step or with your family or with your work, whatever it is. Wow. I told you, if you just listen, you will hear. Right? How do you view others? Paul gives a really quick greeting here. Because Paul wants their best. And and I don't think he just throws out words. I think he means what he says so that it can bring out the best in people. So he greets people. And it caused me to think as I was going through this, how do I view others? How do I greet others? What's really in my heart towards others? And in Paul's heart, it was always God's best. So he says these two little words, grace and peace. But you have to understand, it's not just his two little words. If you read through this Colossians, especially as you get to the end of chapter 1, Paul says, the whole point of my life is to help you become the best you can be in God. I am struggling that you'll be made perfect. Not that you will be a perfect person that never does anything wrong, but you will be made perfect in the sense of complete maturity that you will experience in Christ. All that God wants you to, to experience. I don't care who you are, grace and peace. Grace is a simple word, is the gift of living in the presence of God's unmerited love. I just would pray that you would live every day with this deep experience that every breath that you breathe is a gift from God. Every moment that you have is an opportunity for you to live this life God has given you. You don't need to strive, you don't need to measure up, you don't need to have to do it right. But like a child, you can just grow and be and make mistakes and fall. And when you do something wrong, just repent of it and know that I love you and walk in my grace and walk in my grace. You don't need to somehow strive and do something great for me. I will just live with you and the great things that I want to have done will happen through you. And then he says peace. It's not this idea of just not being anxious. It's this idea of the word shalom, which means it's it's such a big concept. It's about um, all the world being the way it should be. It's it's justice and, and, and all of relationships being right, right with God, right with one another. All of it is good and it's healthy and it's well. It's as it ought to be. 
And I just pray that you would walk in this love of God, just showered with his life, knowing that he is in the process of making shalom happen, that it will happen, that it will be as it ought to be. This stuff that's going on, it is it is sin. It is the result of a fallen world. But I want to tell you, when you get into this book, he talks about, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but he talks about faith expressing itself in love. Faith makes no sense unless it's a life of that's it's beginning to express itself in love. But he says something similar here. You have this triad, faith, love, and hope. And he says, springing from hope. Because they were people who needed to know that this life, the way they saw it, wasn't the end. There was something far greater yet ahead. So what's your attitude towards other when you see them, when you greet them? In Christ. And we all make mistakes. I'm not saying we're going to do this well, but you know what? In Christ, those night vision goggles allow you to begin to see things the way God sees them. You have the ability to see yourself, and God calls the best out of you. Guess what? You get to call the best out of others. If you see people as Jesus sees them. And then we're going to conclude with these last few verses, a whole lot of verses, do you thank people? Because he goes into this long thanksgiving. Here's, a, here's, a, here's where I feel bad. We won't get into all this. But listen to these words. It's just good to hear scripture. Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, which is expressed in love that you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope Stored up in you, uh, stored up for you in heaven, and about what you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. And in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And so Paul begins and he says, Give thanks. Live a life of thanks. He just kind of models it for us. He focuses on things that they're doing well. And to bring out the best in other people, sometimes just focus on some things you're doing well. Because if you focus on the best, you tend to bring out the best. And one of the ways that Paul does it, he just says, God, thank you. And they, they hear him say thank you. You wonder how Epaphras felt when he heard that? His family's going, yeah, Epaphras, yes. I want to tell more people like Epaphras did. He goes on and he, he says, thanks for your love. Genuine faith expressing itself by how we live with others. Thanks God for your impact of the power that comes through the word of God. It's not only making a difference in your lives and bearing fruit in your lives and, and, and showing up in love in your lives, but all around the world when people hear about Jesus and they begin to connect themselves to Jesus and they, they put on Jesus, they begin to see the world the way God sees it and it changes things. The power of God's released. And then he thanks God in verses 7 and 8 for their friend Epaphras. This is the only Thanksgiving section of Paul's letters where he mentions a person. Because Paul wants to emphasize this truth that people follow Jesus because someone else is willing to share Jesus with them. He's never met these people. Paul hasn't. But he wants them to know if it wasn't for Epaphras, he wouldn't even be writing them. 
How do you view your life and where you're at? Do you know that you may be the one link that that person needs to have? And it may be not that they come to faith in Christ, but you're the one link that when you see the best in them, it, it builds a link in the chain where they begin to open their heart to God. And then he says, how do you pray for people? This is the last part, verses 9 through 14. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Because Paul believed that prayer actually makes a difference. He knew, I think as he prayed for him here, that by telling him about his prayer for their best, they would be challenged to fulfill that prayer. So we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of the intimacy of relationship with God, being strengthened with all power according to the glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the holy people in the kingdom of light who has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into, resettled us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. I told you if you get through this, right? Four things Paul prays for here. They'll be, they'll be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Here's four things you can pray for people. They will be filled with knowledge of God's will. Practically, they will have wisdom and understanding as they live out their life. You can pray that they will live lives that please God. That they will be people who bear fruit and grow in intimacy with God. Third thing you can pray for is that they will live strengthened by God. We need to be strengthened by God in this world. We, we look around at what's going on and he says, he, he asks for two things. Endurance. Endurance is a word that's more about circumstances that we will all face and that will all be around us. It will have endurance, the ability to be faithful as he calls out their best. And, and patience. Patience is a word for more for people. Isn't that great? I hope you endure the circumstances, but you got to learn to be patient with one another. And you can pray for everyone that they'll have they will have a, a, an increased knowledge of God's will, that they will live lives that please God, and that that they will live strengthened by God, relying on Him as they endure, and then they're patient. And then that they will live. Here's the key thing: joyfully thankful lives. Boy, we need to do, I need to do that. I, I keep praying and my, my temperament isn't one of, um, positivity. You know, you take the strength finders. Anybody here positivity? You live with someone positivity? Yeah. Good luck. Anyway, um, (laughs) it's a wonderful thing. I mean that from my heart because you know what? They, they, they are the kind of people who just see life in such a, a joyful way. But you know one of the marks of the Spirit of God on a person's life is joy and thanksgiving? And that's just challenged me. I, how, how do I pray for people? And as I think about this prayer specifically for others, I think about my own life and I go, you know, a measure of my maturity is around joy and thanksgiving. In fact, as you go through here, you'll find that, that Paul is, is constantly talking about um, Thanksgiving, you know, being overflowing with Thanksgiving. You read through his letters. I just ask you to read sometime how many times he says people, the believers are thankful, thankful, because thankfulness releases joy. Thankfulness releases joy. And the reason he says you're specifically thankful here is that you've been qualified by God 
to his inheritance, which means um, the promised land, which is life with him forever. Rescued from the dominion of darkness, you have been rescued by Jesus, and then you've been resettled into the kingdom of the Son, his light. It's, it's analogies, as you'll see throughout this, is, in my opinion, this is not about some mystery religion so much as it is about some of the things that the Jews were seeking to call them back to. So I'm going to ask you um, to stand with me right now, okay? And we're going to close the service, and as I said, I want us to pray. And I, I want you to stand up because you would just fall asleep if you were sitting. Because that happens when you pray. And God's okay. He goes, you know, that's all right. As long as you keep pressing into me, there's plenty of grace. There's grace. As I move you to shalom the way it ought to be. So let's um, bow your head. And I always tell people at weddings this, you know, when you're standing, you can get dizzy. So either put your hand on the chair in front of you or hang on to some. And, and sometimes I just say, you know, keep your eyes open and look down at the floor. I it just... I don't want anyone falling, okay? Especially this row up here. Let's pray. Father, we need to come before you because there have been bombs sent in letters and there are bullets flying in synagogues and God, there is a ballot that are available this week for us to express our votes. And so God, we are asking that you would hear our prayers. And I'm going to ask you not to pray publicly. But I'm going to ask you to privately, in your heart, ask God, God, what is it, what is it that's on your